Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Hey there. Before getting back to our interview with two Duke University professors about their research on face masks and COVID-19, there is some late-breaking science news you should know about. It concerns White House interference in science. On December 21, 2020, the U.S. House of Representatives Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis released some documents from the White House. This subcommittee is investigating the Trump administration's handling of the pandemic, and the released documents show that Trump appointees in the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, they tried to alter or block at least 13 different reports written by CDC scientists. For instance, Trump appointees messed around with the CDC's traditional morbidity and mortality weekly reports, and they edited other reports on the use of masks, on the danger of COVID-19 in children, and on the spread of the disease. They also tried to delete emails revealing White House interference in these and other scientific assessments. And on December 21st, this House subcommittee also issued subpoenas to the heads of Health and Human Services and to the CDC for all of the documents, quote, relating to efforts by political appointees to interfere with scientific work conducted by career officials, unquote. The House subcommittee had requested the documents earlier this month, but HHS and the CDC declined either to cooperate or to permit any testimony to the committee about this topic. Some of the emails that the subcommittee released were written by White House Science Advisor Paul Alexander. Alexander's emails were urging the administration to actually speed up the spread of the coronavirus in order to achieve herd immunity. For instance, Alexander sent an internal email on July 3, 2020, that said, quote, There's no other way. We need to establish herd immunity, and it only comes about allowing the non-risk groups expose themselves to the virus, period, unquote. And on that same day, Paul Alexander emailed, quote, Infants, kids, teens, young people, young adults, middle-aged with no conditions, etc., have zero to little risk, so we use them to develop herd immunity. We want them infected, unquote. So this might be why the White House really wanted schools and colleges to be open in the fall to spread the disease among younger people. The problem with this concept? It's wrong. In an article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association on December 16, 2020, reported that while Americans older than 65 have borne the brunt of the coronavirus, about 80% of the cases, 
Younger adults are getting hit hard. From March through July, for instance, there were almost 12,000 more deaths than expected among adults from 25 to 44 years of age. And in New York State, in just April and May of 2020, there were 1,081 deaths due to COVID-19 in people who were in their 20s or 30s or 40s. That's almost 18 per day for two months. And who is it that makes up the majority of these younger deaths? It's Black and Hispanic Americans. And on that topic of anti-scientific thinking, did you hear that PolitiFact, that Pulitzer Prize-winning fact-checking website, just announced the 2020 Lie of the Year? What is it? They called the downplaying and denial about the seriousness of the COVID-19 coronavirus as the 2020 lie of the year. Well, now that we've got that out of the way, let's get to our main topic today, face masks. I hope you caught our show from last week, December 21st, 2020. It was an interview with Dr. Martin Fisher, Associate Research Professor of Chemistry and Physics at Duke University in North Carolina, and Dr. Eric Westman, MD and Associate Professor of Medicine, also at Duke University. They were talking about their September 2nd, 2020 paper published in the journal called Science Advances. The paper is called, quote, Low-Cost Measurement of Face Mask Efficacy for Filtering Expelled Droplets During Speech, unquote. And this paper basically reported that single-layer net gaiters and bandanas are the least efficient at stopping droplets that are emitted from our mouth and nose when we speak. The single-layer neck gaiters were especially undesirable because they appeared to break up larger droplets into even smaller droplets, which then would allow them to remain airborne longer, which is a bad thing. Now, WFMP's very own Ruth Newman, our co-host on this interview, asked the first question today. So, the surgical masks are the disposable ones, right? Can you wear those more than once, the disposable ones, or only once? You know, <laughs> that question was never intended to be asked, right? <laughs> the company wants you just to wear it once, and then you want to have so many around that, to my knowledge, it's never been tested. So, the practical advice I can give is that if you're not around people who have the virus, of course you can reuse them. I mean, and it just might get smelly or soiled and then you replace it. But if you're going into a room, so I'm at a medical clinic during the week, I go into a medical clinic where people come in, they're not from my family and they're not sick overtly. I do a different kind of medical practice, but at the end of those days, I'll throw out the mask, but they supply me with a new one. And so if you're in a hospital going to a room with someone with COVID-19 or any any communicable disease like this, they always throw them out because you know that it's going to be soiled with the disease itself because you went into the room. So you have to match the use of the protection based on the risk that you're involved with, which is, again, is a confusing issue. So when I go to the gymnasium and we sign up, so there's only like two people in the fitness center at the same time, I'll wear a KN95, which is the Chinese version of an N95. And they say not for medical use on them. So it doesn't 
get interfere with the medical N95s. So when I go into an area to a grocery store, you know, I guess I'm a little older than you, Martha, and I, I, I wear my surgical mask I got from the clinic with a cloth mask over it for decoration. And you know, I have some quirky ones with superhero logos on it to try to make some gaiety out of this mess we're in. So again, I'm older, want to take a little more protection. Many of my patients, probably rightly so, are, are really just still quarantining because they're in their 70s and 80s and they have multiple medical issues and, and they're able to get people to bring in things for them. And so again, they won't need a mask at all, right? Because they never go out. Yeah. And then there's the middle ground with me where I'm at home most of the time, but every so often I make a run to the grocery. So maybe I need the mask for an hour and that's it. So maybe that is another reason for me to be able to wear a disposable mask multiple times because I'm only wearing it for an hour while I shop or something like that. Yes. Good. I'm wondering also whether you can comment at all on the different designs, and I don't know if this is beyond your test, but for example, ear loops versus the neck bands as far as a good tight fit, nose clips, you know, those wire nose clips. Do you have any recommendations on that score? It's a difficult question, right? So the N95 masks, they do have a band that go behind the head simply because a true N95 needs to fit pretty tight around your nose and your mouth to be able to seal. And those seals you just can't get if you have a loop behind the ear. Otherwise, those loops are just going to be very tight pulling on your ear all day. That's going to be very uncomfortable. As for nose clips, so yes, generally, the better the fit, the better the function of the mask droplets have two routes to escape, right? One is through the mask itself, through the material, and one is around the material. You can have a perfect mask, but if it's away from your face and then all the particles go around it, it won't do any good. And if you have a perfect fit, but a terrible fabric, that's not good either. It needs to be both to have a good performance. So the nose clip seals the mask a little bit around your face, for people who wear glasses, they can tell immediately because glasses fog up very easily if yes. you have a gap. That's why I generally only wear masks that have a clip. Can you go over some of the materials as well, the, the different kinds of fabric? Yeah, sure. So we did not do a systematic test of many materials and many masks. Right? We really aimed this study at developing a simple technology for other people to to use to to build and to duplicate so we tested the mask that actually dr westman brought in he, he brought in a bag of masks that he could get his hands on so for some of those masks we didn't even know what material it was of course you could tell it was cotton but we didn't have information on the the thread density for example or the thickness we did have information on the number of layers, but that was about it. So in general, of course, it's, it's common sense, right? The denser the material is, the denser the weave is, the more protection it's going to give you. The more layers you put on, the harder time a particle will have to traverse these layers. This is just a general common sense statement. And of course, that goes up to a certain limit. You might think, yeah, if two are good, maybe four, maybe six is better. 
it stops at some point, right? If the material gets too thick, two things happen. One of them is it gets so dense that air doesn't travel through it anymore and it travels around it. That, of course, again, then doesn't help anymore either. So if you put a plastic bag in front of you, that's not very helpful. And in addition... You won't the, die of corona. <laughs> You'll die of something else. I guess that will protect other people from you at some point. <laughs> but so another thing that happens, obviously, is that the mask then gets less comfortable. And at some point, people will then just put it aside and not wear it at all. That, of course, is not good either. The, the mask that you dangle off your ear or that you put aside, that's a mask that doesn't do anything. Plastic bag, I just want to go with that just a minute because I'm noticing these very high profile people just wearing these face shields and they might even be running around the sideline of a football game that give you no filtration. So Martin, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. If you wear a face shield without any mask covering underneath, you're not getting any filtration really. I mean, so the idea that it might come to your eye or face and the face shield blocks you is a totally irrelevant thing. We're talking about, or, or I guess it would block you from spewing on somebody else, but I just don't know who's who's advising these high profile people because just running around with a face shield on without a mask is not giving you any filtration. And that's exactly what happened to me a couple of days ago. I went to my audiologist and she was just wearing a face shield. That was it, no mask. And I was very uncomfortable with that. I finally said something, but yeah, high profile. That's right. What about these uh, advertisers? I see this online when I'm looking for masks that advertise their masks as breathable. Is that a good kind of quality that they're breathable? That's that balance between filtering and being able to breathe. And I think that it's a selling point, right? You know, while this was all going on, and, and I have to say the science that Martin put together in a, such a short time with the analytic scheme of a, a phone and, and computer analysis was awesome. And about the same time, Bill Nye, the science guy who my kids all grew up with, did this blow out a candle technique to test your mask. And it's really pretty brilliant where if you can blow out a candle through your mask, it's not doing any filtration. Even if you can blow the candle a little bit, and yes, you could put your hand there and feel it, but it was just so funny to see this TikTok video of Bill and I, which really was kind of saying the same things that we were finding with the more scientific method. But that's kind of the, the poor person's assessment is, you know, can you make a candle move by blowing through your, your protection? I guess in that case, the face shield would work perfectly so it's not the greatest test but i just thought that was a brilliant quick way to summarize a lot of things so we've gotten lots of emails from people that need to lip read i understand that a mask of course will completely prevent you from reading lips or somebody else wearing a mask you can't see anything obviously so there's a there's a good reason why you would want a transparent material in front of your face however as Dr. Westman pointed out, just a simple face shield is not going to do the trick. However, there are masks that basically have a transparent section right in front of your lips, in front of your face, in front of your mouth, and then a cloth sort of skirt, I guess, around that that provides filtration. 
So there are options out there for people with special needs that need to see it. Some people can can wear something right in front of your mouth for other reasons. So there are other options out there. I'm also wondering about the stretch masks, which are advertised as nylon blend fabric, that they're considered to be moisture wicking. And those are qualities that are advertised also for masks, stretchable, nylon, moisture wicking. Does that sound like a good quality mask? It's really hard to tell. It depends on how much you stretch it. If you take a mask and you stretch it a lot over your face, then by stretching it, you'll also open up the pore size, right? So it's, it depends on how the fabric is made. It's really hard to tell from a description on, on a website how well that mask is going to perform. That's what made that study so valuable, I think, because it's easy to set up, it's easy to replicate. So hopefully manufacturers will actually pick up on this and set this up to be able to test this mask before they send it out to people because people won't be able to do this easily. Right. And it would have your seal of approval on it. That would be great. Well, so, so we have no, no intention of becoming the, the Duke face mask certification authority here. But certainly we are willing to help other people set it up. And, and we do. We spent the last two or three months giving tech support to all sorts of people from big companies to colleges, museums, manufacturers that are all interested in setting this up simply because there is nothing out there that can give them a feel for how well an actual mask performs on an actual person. There are, of course, standards for filtration, but these standards might not be very applicable because it's, it's a measure of the fabric itself, right? And it doesn't say anything about a fit, how well it fits, how well it performs under speaking, sneezing. All these conditions are, are very different. Right. So our technology, I hope, will give manufacturers a handle on a simple test on how well their mask performs on various people. There was one other attribute that I saw being advertised quite a bit online, and that is incorporating antimicrobial silver into the mask. Here now we're talking bacteria, I, I presume. We're not even talking viruses. Do you have any comment on the uh, efficacy of antimicrobial silver impregnated into a mask? I've seen that too. Copper, silver, other... I think they referenced some science that they've done, but I'm pretty sure it hasn't been specifically tested against COVID because it's relatively new. But I think a lot of people will, will think that's a great quality. I don't think there's any science to back that up about viruses. I'd like to know if there is. Yeah, me too. Do you, either of you, have any advice for people as far as how to put on and take off a mask so that they maintain the sanitary quality of it? Yeah, you know, if you were, again, exposed, you know you're exposed to the contaminant, whatever it is. Let's say it is the virus. And, and I see this being used, I think, inappropriately because most of the time in the community use, you go out for one hour, the chances are you didn't get exposed to someone with the virus, right? Chances are, or let's say odds are maybe one or two of those folks, depending on the community spread of it. 
So there is a proper way to take off a mask and you don't touch the outside. Seeing infectious disease, people try to train community people to, you know, and you take it off and you never touch, oh, you never touch the outside. And then, and then they laugh when someone takes the cloth mask off and just crumples it up, put it in their pocket, and then brings <laughs> it back out. Really, both are correct in the correct circumstance. So it depends on the risk, the exposure, you know, the likelihood that there is a particle that you picked up on your trip to the grocery store and back. And, you know, maybe now because community spread is much higher all over the country. In fact, I think now is the time to be even more diligent and more vigilant. And what I do is I take off my mask without touching the front. I'm not, you know, super worried about it, but I, I just don't touch the front and I hang it up on a hook. And I don't rotate specifically every couple of days, but if you let a mask dry out for a day or two, any viral particle is dead. Any sort of particle matter is dry. And so I just have a place where I put it. And do you need to wash them every night? I don't think so, but why not? If you have the wherewithal and you're worried about it. But I don't think you need to use what's called sterile technique, which is what you would do in the operating room or, or if you were in the hospital room. There was a review paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine recently on the super spreader events and how it seems like the touching of something of a surface, that's not a big way that this is spreading. It's mostly from people talking to people outside events, like in the Rose Garden, you know, not being on different surfaces or even the edge of a mask. But that's going to be hard to prove that that didn't do it. So again, a lot of gray area there. So the strictest thing would be to, yeah, be very cautious, throw them all out every day. You know, well, I can't do that. Well, then every now and then, based on the exposure you put the mask into, how you would clean it. I treat it like clothing, you know, that, you know, I don't wear the same clothes every day and I do wash them. But if I went and I'm exposed in the clinic to people I don't know, and I might see 15 people I don't know in a day in a small room, I throw those out or wash them because I have a higher likelihood of being exposed. So in other words, I've been doing wrong to as soon as I leave the store, I take the mask off because it's uncomfortable for me because of the loop behind my ear and I stick it in my pocket. That's not the right thing to do. What I should do is leave it on until I get home, then take it off and put it on a hook. Is that what you're saying? That's what I do. And, yeah. and the, for me is that I still am a little worried about airborne transmission. You know, in a restaurant, in a closed area, in a bus, in a you know fitness center, there's reports of these spreader events, but there are also outdoor events where it's spread. And so, you know, for me, it doesn't bother me to wear it. And I take it off in the car, although if I'm if it's on, I mean, it's pain to leave it on, thinking maybe that's not a totally safe place in the car, although most people I talk to say it is. I'm still using sanitizer. I think what you're doing is typical, and it does a lot by doing that, because I don't know all the answers. I err on the side of, well, why don't I just keep it on? Good, because a neighbor of mine, she went to a funeral, and everybody at the funeral, and it was indoors, was wearing a mask, and so was she. She stood only two feet away from her sister for two hours. And it turned out her sister was COVID positive and developed the symptoms that night. And my neighbor came down with it. She transmitted it to her husband. So everybody was wearing masks, but 
she was not socially distancing and she was in a closed room with her sister for two hours. So the mask is not the be all end all, in other words. <laughs> and the asymptomatic spread, so people can be spreading it even though they feel fine, is just another diabolical thing that happens, you know? You can feel fine and yet you can be infecting other people. It's just that contagious. And it's hard to explain that to people but that's an interesting story. I had lots of anecdotes of people just sharing car rides being the spreader event, even with masks. So, and then now we're going to have to ask, well, what kind of mask? Exactly. I went on a two-hour car ride with my friend and she had on a one-ply paper towel mask. And I was a little uncomfortable. It was just a paper towel in the shape of a mask. <laughs> and she said, but Ruth, it's a mask. <laughs> because a lot of people don't make the distinction as long as it's a mask. And so I'm so glad you have been conducting these really important tests to give us valuable information. I just wonder now that they have this great procedure, what's next? Are you going to do some more experiments? So we were never in the business of doing mass testing. Right? So we were never intending to do certification of any sort of masks and so we just don't have the resources. We don't have the manpower to do this. So one thing we are considering is making the technique a little bit more easy to use, a little bit more easy to disseminate, right? Which, of course, is a matter of can we get funding for it? I mean, I, I did these experiments and my daughter did these experiments and Dr. Westman. We all donated our time. We did this basically off the books. But of course, I can't ask students to come in and do the same. So everything we do wants funding, right? We, we need funding for this. So at this point, we probably will limit ourselves just to help other people duplicate this setup. I spend countless hours just answering questions and sending out schematics. And the nice thing about this is it's not just us. For example, I had a person that set this up on their site and he wasn't familiar with the program, with the programming package that we used. So he sat down and actually programmed this in an open source package and he sent it to me. And now the software, for example, is, is freely available with a infrastructure that everybody can use. So it's starting to be a community project almost. So we're still sort of babysitting this to some extent, but we really hope that this will grow legs and that will support itself as opposed to we are driving this. We applied for some funding that didn't come through. I mean, everyone's project is really important. And it would be really nice to be able to, to do all of these different questions you have with this paradigm, but it's limited by the funding. Yeah. I want to compliment you've got really something to say about what you did during the pandemic. It's very yeah. interdisciplinary. I counted six different departments that were involved. That's really neat. Plus an NGO in the community, I think. It's really admirable that you brought all these different disciplines together. Just attack this one question. It's really neat. Congratulations. Well, thank you. And everybody was really excited to, to contribute. As I said, how often is it that you can really help out people? As a non-MD, I can't say that very often. So it was, a, it was a great experience just to be able to help. That's wonderful. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your being on. It's important to get the message out there, right? That not all masks are created equal. Exactly.
That was Martin Fisher, Associate Research Professor in the Department of Chemistry and Physics at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and Eric Westman, MD, Associate Professor of Medicine at Duke University. And they were both describing the test procedure that they developed for comparing how well different types of face masks work to protect us from exposure to the COVID-19 virus. Thanks to Ruth Newman for making this interview possible. And of course, we also want to thank you for tuning in today. Speaking for the entire Bench Talk team, we want to wish you happy holidays and are hoping you have a healthy and fulfilling new year. You've been listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. See you next year.